Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Advances in the Treatment of Neurogenic Detrusor Overactivity, is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Novus Medical Education, and is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this webcast uh, titled Advances in the Treatment of Neurogenic Detrusor Reactivity. Uh, we're here speaking today from the 2021 Societies for Pediatric Urology meeting here in uh, sunny Miami, Florida. Uh, and my name is Jonathan Ruth. I'm a pediatric urologist uh, at Duke University where I serve as the Chief of uh, Children's Surgical Services. Um, uh, I'm also an Associate Professor of Surgery, Pediatrics, and Population Health. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Benjamin Whittem. Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Ben Whittem. I'm an uh, Associate Professor of Urology at Riley Hospital for Children at Indiana University Health, and I primarily focus on pediatric uh, urology at that institution. So, before we get started, let's review our learning objectives for today. Upon the conclusion of this webcast, participants should be able to summarize therapeutic options for pediatric neurogenic dissociative reactivity and the efficacy for each of those. Describe the definitions of therapy non-response, partial response, and complete response. Identify therapy non-response rates of the various medication classes. And evaluate common adverse drug event frequency with medications approved by the FDA for NDO. So a quick word on pediatric neurogenic bladder in general. Um, what exactly is neurogenic bladder? Well, we know from copious data that roughly 25% of children at any given point in, in their lives are going to experience some degree of voiding dysfunction. Pediatric neurogenic bladder can perhaps best be thought of as an extreme example of voiding dysfunction, specifically where we know that there is a known and defined neurologic cause for that voiding dysfunction in that particular child. And I would say that the most common uh, etiology for uh, pediatric neurogenic bladder would most likely be classified as spina bifida, uh, spinal cord injury, and then some less common things like a transverse myelitis or um, cerebral, cerebral palsy, uh, things like that. So uh, we're going to be focused primarily on those etiologies for pediatric uh, neurogenic bladder, primarily spina bifida, which I know in my practice is probably the most common thing that I see where I do see neurogenic bladder. And I would certainly tend to agree with you. Uh, it's certainly, we do have some kids with transverse myelitis, cerebral palsy, uh, other causes, but by far the most common thing that we see is spina bifida. In terms of, of neurogenic tertiary activity and uh, pediatric neurogenic bladder in general, the key factor here really to keep in mind is that uh, long-term urologic care and management of these patients is absolutely essential. We know from CDC data uh, umpire data, national patient registry data, other sources that roughly 70 to 75 percent of all of these children will require clean and catheterization, for example, among other things, to manage their bladder and keep them safe over time. I think that's paramount to the management of these children. I, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years, since the advent of the ventro, uh, the VP shunt to protect from hydrocephalus, you know, renal failure was the most common morbidity and mortality. We've been able to reduce that significantly with the advances that we've had with uh, different therapies that we're going to talk about shortly. So it's very important for urologic care long-term, not only in pediatrics, but even into adulthood. These children need to be followed regularly. Certainly, medical and surgical you know, options abound for these patients. And let's dive into that a little bit more. 
Before we do, though, I'd like to, to focus a little bit more specific on one particular form of neurogenic bladder, or one particular um, uh, symptom of, of neurogenic bladder, and that's specifically neurogenic detrusor overactivity, or NDO. Um, this is a, a common thing which we see in our neurogenic bladder patients, um, and it effectively manifests, uh, again, it can be thought of as an extreme example of the voiding dysfunction which we'll see in some kids, which typically in a non-neurogenic child will present with urgency, frequency, and occasional accent. In the neurogenic bladder population, it's a very different beast. Today can act as in many different things. We can see hydronephrosis. We can see recur recurrent urinary tract infections, incontinence, inability to empty, and in the, in the worst case scenario, we can see renal failure. Absolutely. So let's take a minute to talk about the goals and responses we're looking for uh, in terms of management of pediatric neurogenic bladder, particularly in children with spina bifida. Uh, the one thing that, that we always try and teach our trainees is to shoot for uh, the, you know, kind of pay attention to kids. And specifically, we're looking for the kidneys, making sure that the kidneys are staying safe, keeping them infection-free, keeping them dry, when and if they decide to be dry, because to be very clear, uh, and I should also mention that these are in order. Kidneys come first, infections come second, dryness comes third, because no child has ever died from having wet underwear. However, kidney failure, definitely not a good thing that we want to avoid. And then the fourth uh, portion of that is kind of social independence. As kids become older, we want them to becoming more and more independent and gradually taking over more and more of their care when they're able to do so. John, that's a great acronym, uh, and I think I'm going to use that with my trainees, but I couldn't agree more. The problem is, is that kidney failure is silent. We don't see this hydronephrosis, renal scarring. There's no symptoms beside that, and that's where detrusor uh, overactivity in this neurogenic population is very important to be watching because there are no symptoms realistically. Absolutely. Uh, we have to be watching this closely. Once again, why we need to be following these patients regularly. Um, infections, obviously, those are obvious when, when, when children are having infections, but I could not agree with you more about dryness and social independence. I think those are important, but they do uh, come last. Uh, I always say I would hate to make a social problem into a medical problem. And Absolutely. I can certainly cause you to go into renal failure. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And Absolutely. I think that's where we have to focus our goals on, our number one, number two. And then I think it's a big drop-off till we hit three and four. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Typically, there's a variety of indications for interventions for uh, pediatric NDO, uh, and those can range anywhere from new-onset incontinence, new-onset infections, new-onset hydronephrosis, um, or obviously, more concerningly, in, you know, decreases in compliance. Right. And we can also start to see uh, higher detrusor leak point pressures, uh, and I always worry more when I have to start to hear about new incontinence that wasn't there before. Absolutely. Those are all the things that make me start to consider, is the therapy that I'm offering, is it efficient? Right. Um, I do think, that, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but how important your dynamics are in the role of all of this. When we start to see these changes, we probably need to get some degree of data to tell us what's going on. And Absolutely. I think that's what drives the next steps. Uh, but these are the, these things that you just listed uh, and I, I, I added, added to, this is when I start to say, okay, something's not right. We need to do something. And the first step is, and I'm sure it is in your hands too, is let's get your dynamics. Has something changed? And if so, how can I affect that change? How can I modify that to reduce the risk of kidney, kidney failure, infections, 
social continence and dryness. Right, absolutely. And actually, in the umpire protocol, as I mentioned, the standard protocol is that we do urodynamics at birth, at one year of age, at two years of age, at three years of age, at you know moving forward to five years of age, and then you enter a dry spell. Uh, and we don't necessarily do urodynamics between ages five and ten unless it's needed for cause. And at any point along the line, in between those goalposts, if it needs to be done for cause because of those you know, changes you were just mentioning then we would perform an extra dynamics, again, to try and figure out what's going on in this child's bladder. I don't know about you, but I have a very low threshold to repeat your dynamics if something doesn't sound right. Absolutely. Because that's when I, I know that some, something's going on. Absolutely. And in children who have begun on a therapy, let's say, and we'll get into to more details in, in just a minute, but let's assume for the sake of they've started a medication, we need to assess whether or not that medication is working. Is it a complete non-response? We've not really budged their NDO. They've got just as many episodes as they were having before. Uh, is it a partial response where we've seen some decrease in the NDO episodes, some decrease in the overall uh, bladder pressures, but they're not to the point we want them to be? Or is, is it a full response? Is there systematic capacity improving? Right. Um, or is there reflux? Do they have reflux? Has reflux improved? Uh, all those things. There's no way of looking at a patient and seeing that. You've got to test it. And I think that's where your dynamics are so important and vital to this. Absolutely. So let's talk for a minute about the current treatment paradigm yeah. uh, for pediatric NDO. Um, really, historically, the, the, the cornerstone of therapy has always been antimuscarinics or, or more broadly anticholinergics in general. This medication right. class has been around roughly since dinosaurs ruled the earth, I think. <laughs> Um, and despite their very common use in children, uh, there's relatively few of them that are actually approved uh, by the FDA for in use in pediatric NDO. And specifically, uh, we have oxybutynin, uh, we have solifenacin, um, and that's about it. Um, and everything else is given is typically given off-label. Um, these can be given classically orally, um, or uh, in the case of oxybutynin in particular, uh, can frequently be given actually intravesically as an installation. Um, into the bladder. And the goal here is to decrease bladder storage pressures, uh, reduce back pressure on the kidneys uh, through the bladder, uh, and also to reduce these incontinent episodes or NDO episodes uh, that are, are occurring. These medicines have, as, as uh, John alluded to, have been around uh, since the beginning of time, it feels like, but they're not totally benign medications. I Absolutely. mean, I think we've had some serious issues with them. I know you and I both talked about this uh, at meetings and over some beers here and there, but, uh, you know, everyone talks about dry mouth and uh, injury retention. So some mm -hmm. of these kids can void. Now they can't all of a sudden constipation. I think those are already some issues that we see in spina bifida population. Absolutely. But I think some of the more alarming things from a uh, physician and talking with parents have been some behavioral changes, mood alterations that have sometimes even hallucinations, which uh, um, are alarming, not only to the family, uh, but also to me. And so I've uh, been very quickly to change medications when I see that, because it is alarming. And, uh, I, and, I, and I worry when I see those, when I, when I begin to see those. Uh, Absolutely. Antimuscarinics and anticholinergics, at the end of the day, they're smooth muscle relaxants. And the issue is that they're not necessarily specific smooth muscle relaxants. So the same smooth muscle that's present, or the same class of smooth muscle that's present, within the bladder is also present within the rectum, which is why you wind up getting constipation. It's present within the salivary glands, which is why you get dry mouth. You get visual changes because the iris um, of the eye is the same. And likewise, kids can get overheated in the summertime, again, because sweat glands, again, are smooth muscle dependent. But I wholeheartedly agree with you. The most concerning factor that can uh, can occur with these kids is when it does penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And 
you have a cute little six-year-old telling you all about the pink elephants dancing on the wall. That's not a conversation that you want to have with a child in clinic. And those are uncommon. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to say that these are happening with all of my patients, but you know, one out of a hundred is, is enough to make you remember it because we're still t- we're talking about it right now. Right. It's, it's an alarming. Exactly. And another similar type of concern that we have with these kids is that we know in the setting of children who have VP shunts, um, it's very well documented uh, uh, among many children with spina bifida that we do see executive function challenges, uh, particularly as they age, particularly as the VP shunts perhaps uh, begin to have some, some concerns you know, are, are disconnected over time, uh, you know, don't function well, and after repeated occurrences of VP shunts, you know, needing to be revised, we do see challenges in terms of the executive function uh, for these, these folks, and into adulthood, perhaps an increased risk of dementia, which particularly for endocrinosclerotics is concerning. There's been some data in the, in the adult literature in elderly patients about increased risk of dementia. I, I, we've not proven that or shown that in pediatric patients specifically with myelomeningocele or spina bifida as they age. But that's, I, every meeting that I come to, everyone expresses that concern, but we don't really have another option. Exactly. So right now, John, what do you do when you have a patient who comes in and sees pink elephants and is having trouble with their muscarinix? What are you thinking about your next line of therapy? So the, the challenge that, that we usually have in that kind of situation or that I kind of discuss with parents is, do we want to completely halt uh, that line of therapy or do we want to progress on to something different? Um, each parent is really going to have, each family, I should say, is going to have, you know, their own uh, version of that. And it really depends upon, you know, to our previous, you know, point, were they not responding at all, but you're getting side effects, right. in which case we're going to give up on this altogether. Or were they having a good response, but the side effects are really intolerable. We need intolerable. to reduce the dose. Right. Can we get, can we get that maximal tolerable dose? And that's, that's a, that's a hard, that's a hard time. It's it hard, is. it's a hard patient to figure out and what the next steps are. Absolutely. And along those lines, um, you know, I think it's worthwhile to kind of discuss briefly, you know, what some of the, the you know, other new treatment options that are, are out there are. Um, and again, this is really a, a significant advance in the field as far as I'm concerned, um, that we now do have, you know, a new medication or a new class of medications that's, that's out there that actually is now approved uh, for use in children, specifically with NDO. Uh, Mirabegron was approved, as you all well know, by the FDA in March of this year. Um, and it's arguably better tolerated uh, among you know these kids. Again, by and large, side effects are not the problem when we uh, we, we put kids on on mirabegron. Again, it's a newer medication. We don't have good long-term data to really look at and say it's you know tolerated well over time simply because it hasn't been out of the market thus far. Right. But you know, but the the phase three open label trial that that I think prompted the FDA approvals. You know. It wasn't a huge study. It was about 60-some patients or, or so who all were on intermittent catheterization uh, with known um, neurogenic detrusive activity. So the exact patients that we worry about and are talking about, they showed a pretty significant improvement in their systemic uh, capacity, which was their primary outcome. And they actually did the power analysis to make sure that, that they're actually finding a difference when they were looking for it, which is, as you and I both know, is rare in right. any urology or pediatric urology literature, but they also noticed an improvement in the number of incontinence episodes, the amount of volume they were calfing, uh, and overall showing they were able to relax the bladder in a better way is, is what I sort of took out of this. And right. they're even on some um, of the uh, quality of life questionnaires, they seem to see some improvement. Some were show no difference, but there was improvement, particularly looking at the difference that they saw pre and post Merbegron. 
Exactly. And this, I think, was a huge advance uh, because being able to have a medication that can increase uh, the, the capacity of the bladder, uh, that can decrease uh, NDO episodes, decrease incontinence, uh, and overall, you know, give a, a better, happier bladder picture, again, our primary concern here is what's going on with the kidneys. If you can reduce that bladder pressure and reduce those NDO episodes, you're reducing back pressure on the kidneys, which is going to keep them happier longer. It's just like your acronym with kids, right? We got the kidneys protected. We're hopefully reducing infection. The the number of incontinence episodes are, are reducing, which helps the social. So I think this is a, and it's an oral pill or a liquid if exactly. you can, if you can get it suspended, which has been a problem recently. But I'm sure they're going to work on that. I'm sure. <laughs> To that end, um, why don't we actually focus in on a typical patient case uh, to kind of you know, try and see how this, this you know, sort of academic discussion we've been having would fit specifically into the manage of a given child. Because if you're anything like me, you've been considering lecturing me for hours, but until I hear it in a patient situation, exactly. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so Adam is a 13-year-old boy who's been followed in a multidisciplinary spine bifida clinic since diagnosis, which actually in his case occurred prenatally, which is often the case for our patients. Yeah. Um, he was counseled, or his parents, I should say, were counseled in terms of, of fetal care by a multidisciplinary team, and he's been managed proactively with frequent monitoring over time. Now, thankfully, Adam has not had any urinary tract infections or any problems along those lines, but as is often the case, again, after age five is when we really start looking for attainment of continence in these children, and at age six, he was actually diagnosed with neurogenic detritial reactivity, NDO, uh, and at that point, CIC and anticholinergics were initiated. He tolerated them well, Great. but he remained incontinent. He was followed with uh, serial ultrasounds that showed no significant changes, no concerns, no hydrourea nephrosis, and most importantly, no scarring. But nonetheless, the incontinence you know, remained. So on urodynamics, we've talked already about the, the importance of that in terms mm -hmm. of kind of determining management. Um, Adam has low pressure. He has a relatively smooth bladder wall. Uh, and he has no reflux. However, his bladder neck is relatively open uh, with significant leakage during neurogenic uh, detritial activity episodes. And so he's able to get to 75% of expected bladder capacity on an appropriate dose of an anticholinergic despite CIC, and he still has multiple NDO episodes. So he would certainly fall into that class of a partial response Absolutely. kind of kid. How, how is he? I'm, so the first question is, so if he came into my clinic, with all that, which is great. Thank you for teeing it up for me. It makes it really easy how to manage him. I would first off talking to the family about, you know, I, could we could we potentially increase his muscarinic? Could we go up a little bit on his anticholinergic therapy? Increase the frequency of his CIC, maybe to reduce that. Um, but it sounds like I'm sure you've done all those things at this point. And and in this case, he's actually already doing CIC every three hours, oh. which for a school-age kid That's is really a hard. challenge. Um, and on top of that, he is having increasing uh, constipation due to the side effects of the anticholinergics he's on. So what, what non-invasive therapies would you kind of you know, think about at this point? Well, um, previously, I would have started talking to them about um, it's more invasive would be considering Botox um, and saying, you know, well, let's go to the operating room. We will inject your bladder. Um, we will uh, use about 10 uh, units per kilogram based on his weight. So max about 300 units is sort of what I do for neurogenic bladder. I'm sure it's similar for you. Um, however, I think recently um, Merbegron has been this stopgap right now where I would say, well, we're having a partial response on uh, anticholinergic therapy. He's kind of maxed out, it sounds like. We're starting to get some of the bad side effects. Mm -hmm. So I think it's time. I, this is this is the perfect patient, I think, to say, let's start at 25 uh, milligrams of Merbegron and see where we go. 
I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think this is a, a child who he's not having any signs of kidney problems. This is essentially an incontinence episode. You don't want to take this child to the operating room to do a large urinary reconstruction for Absolutely. a kid who really doesn't need it at this point. He's not getting his goals met by you know, maximum medical management. And I agree with you, taking him to the operating room every six to 12 months for Botox injection isn't exactly ideal either. I would argue though, he's, as of you know, three years ago, he was on maximum medical therapy. I think now he's not on maximum medical That's therapy because point. we do have FDA approved medicine for this that, that we can now maximize his medical therapy. That's a great point. So just to summarize the key kind of takeaway points from today, we talked a little bit about the therapeutic options for, for NDO, uh, antimuscarinics, Mirabegron, Botox, and select cases about 20% of kids will go into surgery. But again, kids like Adam, not that kid just yet. Well, I do think that the heavy lifting from this is pretty much CIC and anticholinergic. Absolutely. That those are, those are going to be our primary medications and therapies. However, the patients that are having a partial response or incomplete response, I think that Mirabegron's got a nice... Uh, use at this point. I wholeheartedly agree. We just talked about therapeutic response rates and how to define those, non-response, partial response you just mentioned, complete responses, again, kind of where to go from there based on the algorithms, um, and also what uh, sorts of, of non-response rates will look like for the various medication classes of antimuscarinics or beta-3 agonists like Mirabegron. Uh, we talked a little bit about Mirabegron tolerability. Again, the biggest problems I run across are occasional headaches. Um, based on the mechanism of action, we need to be concerned about the potential for high blood pressure. Um, I personally haven't seen that, but it's a potential option that's you know that, that can be uh, can occur. And, and again, something we need to be worried about. I think my biggest caveat is if we don't know long term, and right. I think that's what we have to follow. However, it's something that we've never had before. It, mm -hmm. it, it fits in a place where we need the medication. Uh, so I'm, I'm okay using it. I think the FDA is, agreement, is in agreement that it's, it's safe to use. I think we've proven it's safe, safety and efficacy. Long-term tolerability and safety, I think, is only time is going to tell. And I think we're going to follow that. I wholeheartedly agree. And with that, we thank you all very much for joining us today. Thank and you. And appreciate your attention. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled... Advances in the Treatment of Neurogenic Detrusor Overactivity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Novus Medical Education and is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.